Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Father, we ask your blessing on our time tonight as we um, look into the timeline of history. Father, thank you for gracing us, giving us life and making us a part of your story. Father, help us to live well, to run our race well, to fight the good fight of faith, to give glory to you. Help us, Lord, to realize the privilege it is to live life, to be a part of your story, for each of us to have a plan and a purpose that you ordained before the foundation of the world. Father, help us to walk in that well for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, last week, Joshua mentioned a, a, a man by the name of Boethius. And um, he's probably not someone known very well in history. But he's probably had um, more impact than we think. Um, he was born around 480. He was a Roman scholar. He was a Christian philosopher. He was a statesman. Uh, he was executed in 524 by the Ostrogoth king Theodoric. And uh, Theodoric was a Christian. Um, Boethius was a Christian. Some people don't think he was, um, but the consensus is that he was, and most people don't think he was, or some people don't think he was, because in his, the work that he's known for called The Consolation of Philosophy, which he wrote while he was awaiting his execution, he doesn't specifically mention Jesus, um, but other writings have been uncovered, and it's clear that Boethius was a Christian. But this work called The Consolation of Philosophy was a Neoplatonic work. Uh, so, um, but it was basically a work that, um, that encouraged people to pursue wisdom, to love God, and that, that pursuit of wisdom and that pursuit of the love of God was the true source of human happiness. Um, Jeffrey Chaucer was greatly influenced by this work called The Consolation of Philosophy. And if you know who Jeffrey Chaucer is, this comes much later in our history. We may not even get there. We may end this timeline before we get to someone like Geoffrey Chaucer. Uh, but the Canterbury Tales um, were written in English. Um, our, our language, the language we speak today, it's the, the, the first and greatest work written in the English language. And Chaucer was greatly influenced by, uh, by this man. Not only Chaucer, but King Alfred had his works translated into English. Chaucer translated Consolation of Philosophy into English uh, from Latin. Uh, Alfred had them translated into English, as well as Queen Elizabeth I had them translated into English uh, a couple of centuries later. Um, 
And if we think about Alfred and we think about Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth in particular uh, was instrumental in terms of the Reformation taking hold uh, in England. Um, So I wanted to mention him because Joshua brought his name up last week. Uh, And there are people like this in history that we typically don't learn about but they've had a greater impact on us than we might than we might realize. Uh, anything else you want, Joshua? You have anything else about um, Bo- Boethius and the consolation of philosophy, or? Right. Right. It's it's considered one of the most popular and influential philosophical works uh, from from the time it was written. You know, from the sixth century to uh, to the eighteenth century. So spanning that period of time. Uh, this work, Consolation of Philosophy, had a great impact on laymen as well as uh, men uh, who were leaders, men who were um, churchmen. So it, it had a great, a great impact. All right, so we're in the what we call the early Middle Ages. Some people call it the Dark Ages. Uh, we talked about why it's called the Dark Ages. But the early Middle Ages, from the years 500 to the years uh, to the year 1000, what I want to talk about next uh, is the life of Muhammad and the rise of Islam. So uh, Boethius was executed in 524 by the Ostrogoth king. Well, oh, let me say this first. I, I should, let me back up. In 496, there was a king by the name of Clovis I. Clovis I was, a, was the king of the Franks. Now, the Franks were a Germanic tribe. Um, and so it, at this time, remember the fall of the Roman Empire, there was no Germany in France. So it was all just this region and it was, uh, it was uh, ruled by, by the Franks, which is where we get, that's why France is called France. Uh, the Franks ruled this region, and it was uh, inclusive of what we can think about in terms of Germany and France now. We're going to see later on that Germany was this, became known as this region, ruled by the Franks, these Germanic uh, tribes or this Germanic tribe that took over. They 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 defeated the the Goths, and they they took this area. They defeated the Saxons ultimately, the pagan Saxons. And but Clovis, this Frankish king, converted from paganism to Christianity in 496. Now this is important. Because um, we may not get there tonight, but 
there are some rulers that you may be familiar with. Um, for instance, maybe you've never, unless you're my student in history, who's heard of Charles Martel? Anyone know who Charles Martel is? Huh? I subbed for you one day and I got to learn a little bit about him. Yeah. So, what does the, so his name was Charles, but what does Martel mean? Anybody remember what Martel means? Anyone speak French here? No, that's his grandson. So Charles Martel or Charles the Hammer. Um, and his son, we'll, we'll probably get to him, and then his grandson were Frankish rulers, Frankish kings. They became kings. And we're going to talk about how they became kings. Um, But Clovis became a Christian, and so when we talk about Charles Martel and his son and grandson, you know, this is a couple of centuries later. So the fact that Clovis, the Frankish king, becomes a Christian, that made an impact on his people. And so... Christianity spread and the Christianization of these tribes and these kingdoms occurred because God saved these kings and God saved these rulers and it had an impact. And it's not that Clovis made his subjects become Christian, it didn't. But when the king becomes a Christian, it has an impact on, on a nation, spiritually and in the natural uh, so I wanted to just mention that, um, the fact that Clovis I becomes a Christian in 496. Now let's go to, um, let's go to 570 A.D., which was the year that Muhammad was born. It, Muhammad was born in 570, and he died in 632. And if you don't think the life of Muhammad is still having an impact on you today, then your head is in the sand and you don't have a clue what's happening in the world. We have a war taking place in the world today uh, that can be traced directly back to the birth of this man who started this religion we call Islam. So Muhammad was born in Mecca in 570, he died in the city of Medina, which is also, both of these cities are in Saudi Arabia, on the Arabian Peninsula. He died in Medina in 632. He was the son of a merchant and, that, uh, uh, and the ruling tribe of, of that uh, region. He was orphaned at the age of six. Muhammad never learned to read or write. So Muhammad uh, did not write the Quran. Because um, he never learned to read and he never learned to write. He was born in Mecca. And Mecca was a major trading hub. Now, there wasn't anything in Mecca except hot sand for the most part. But it was a major trading hub because of its place. It was a port city on the Red Sea there. And so it became a hub for traders who were traversing the trade routes by ship. Consequently, 
Mecca was a cultural and a religious hub. There was great cultural and religious diversity there in Mecca. And so not only the traders who came by ship, but you had caravans of traders who would come to deliver merchandise to be put on ships or to pick up merchandise that was offloaded from ships. And so if you can imagine, there were lots of different people, people groups, beliefs, cultures that um, were in Mecca. Mecca was the home of what's called the Kaaba. The Kaaba is this black square temple. It is the most holy site of Islam today. But then in 570 AD, or when Muhammad was there as a boy, and he no doubt would have been at the Kaaba on a regular basis, growing up in Mecca, the Kaaba was this square temple that housed 360 gods. And so all of these people from all over the world that would come to trade, they could go to the Kaaba and they could worship their god. And so these 360 gods were represented in the Kaaba. And these worshipers would march around. And there was this black stone. They say it was originally white, but it's black now. And the, the Muslims say that it turned black because it absorbed all the sins of the people uh, and it made it black. But they would march around. They kissed this stone that supposedly fell from heaven. It's probably a meteorite. But this stone is encased in, in the wall of the Kaaba there. And, and the uh, worshipers would march around. They kissed this wall. Sound familiar? This is what the Muslims do when they, you know, have their every year when the, the great pilgrimage takes place. And you, you, they, they go in a circle marching around the Kaaba there. Well, that didn't begin with Islam. That was going on by these worshipers of all these different gods. In 610... So in 610, Muhammad is born in 570. In 610, he begins to hear voices and believes he's being visited by, at first, ultimately he believes he's visited by the archangel Gabriel. But at first he wasn't sure. He thought it was perhaps the jinn or the, what we, our word genies comes from these jinns or jinnies. J-I-N-N or J-I-N-N-I. And jinns were, they were creatures, these mythological creatures that were somewhere, something between human and angelic. They could be good or they could be bad. They could be good, helpful, or they could be bad and mischievous. Well, when, when Muhammad was 40 years old, he... Um, begins to hear from these, these voices, these hearing voices. He comes to believe that it's the archangel Gabriel who is giving him messages about God. And the angel tells Muhammad 
that there is only one God and that his name is Allah. Now what's interesting is at the Kaaba, there are these 360 gods, but there was one God in particular at the Kaaba, represented at the Kaaba, and this God was considered to be the ruler of the universe. We might say he's the chief deity of all the gods, the ruler of the universe. And that God's name was Allah Tala, Allah Tala. Well, Muhammad, getting these messages from Gabriel, he believes, makes the claim that Allah is the one and only God. So this is why Islam is one of three monotheistic religions. Christianity, Islam, and Judaism are the three major religions of the world that are monotheistic. They have a belief in one God. Some people believe that we all worship the same God. And I would disagree. Um, especially when we talk about Islam. The God of Islam, even though they say it is the God of the book, the God of the Bible, the God of Islam is not the God of the Bible. Muslims recognize the Old Testament scriptures. They, they uh, believe in them. They believe Jesus is a great prophet. They believe Jesus was a messenger of God, but he wasn't the ultimate messenger of God. He wasn't the final messenger of God. That is Muhammad. And, and God is Allah. And Jesus is a prophet of Allah, but Jesus was just a good man, a good teacher, a good prophet. Now, they do believe Jesus is going to come back one day and, and judge the earth. But not because Jesus is the Son of God or because Jesus is God or Jesus is who he declares himself to be in the Bible. They don't believe that. But if you think about Muhammad growing up there in Mecca, there were many Jews, there were many Christians who lived in, in that region, who came and traded in that region, and Muhammad would have been influenced by Christian belief, by Jewish belief. He would have also been influenced by pagan beliefs, moon gods, sun gods, all kinds of pagan gods. But he starts hearing these voices and he believes that he's hearing from the angel Gabriel and that the angel tells him that Allah is the only God. So these revelations continued Muhammad never wrote down his revelations. He spoke about them. He taught about them, but he never wrote them down. In fact, the revelations are recorded in the Quran. Those revelations were not written until after Muhammad's death in 632. They were written by the followers of Muhammad. Uh, his first converts were his, his wife, Khadija. Uh, he, he went, she was a widow, and he went to help her. He would do chores for her. 
She was 15 years older than her. He started working for her when he was about 20 years old, and they fell in love and got married, and she becomes his wife. Um, and then he had a cousin named Ollie. Uh, Ollie was one of his first converts. He had a servant named Zaid, and Zaid was one of his first converts. And one of the things that Muhammad did was, if you became a follower of him, he would uh, release you from slavery. So if you can imagine how many slaves existed back then, uh, it was just a common thing. You come be a follower of Muhammad, and you're not a slave anymore. Uh, this is one of the ways that Islam spread so quickly because many of the oppressed at that time went to Islam because they wanted to be made free. He had also another friend by the name of Abu Bekar, uh, which also happened to be his father-in-law. It was Abu Bekar who actually wrote, ordered the writing of the Quran after Muhammad's death. But there were a lot of people who thought that Muhammad was mentally ill. He's hearing voices. He's beginning to preach. In 613, he begins to preach publicly, and he's urging the rich to give to the poor and calling for the destruction of idols. It's not that everything he preached and everything he taught was bad. In fact, he had much compassion on the poor and upon the needy. So he was encouraging uh, the rich to, to help the poor, to give to the poor. He gained disciples very quickly, but he also gained enemies very quickly. And so the merchants of Mecca turned against him because his message was becoming dangerous to them. And so they actually... Uh, sought to kill him. They tried to have him murdered unsuccessfully because he had too many friends, and so he was always tipped off. But eventually, in 622, he had to flee from Mecca to the town of Medina. And so in 622, he makes this journey from Mecca to Medina called the Hagira, or the Flight. It was a very dangerous journey that he makes from Mecca to Medina that is today known as the Hegira or the flight. It's this date, 622, <clears throat> when Muhammad flees Mecca for Medina in what's called the Hegira. It's this date of 622 that marks the establishment of Islam. Uh, the era of Islam, the Islamic era. So Muslims will tell you today that Islam's origins, uh, it began in 622 with the Hegira. Um, Muhammad gathers his followers, and now he's ready to go and deal with his uh, opposition. By 629, Muhammad and his followers controlled Mecca. So Muhammad gathers an army for all practical purposes, but he can't pay his army. So what does he do? He promises that if they follow him and if they fight this holy war with him, he promises that when they die, they'll go to paradise. Now, if you know anything about Islam and if you ever talk to a Muslim, 
Islam, there is no assurance of salvation in Islam. Um, so what you are dependent, uh, Allah is called the merciful one. So whenever a, a Muslim talks and he, he says the name Allah, what immediately follows? Allah, blessed be his name, the merciful one. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like the Jews who don't flippantly use the name of God, and I'm not saying we, we should, but it's, it's this, you're earning your salvation with Islam. There is never an assurance that you will be saved. It's not until you stand before Allah and you're judged and and. If you keep the tenets of Islam, if you do everything, then the hope is that Allah will have mercy on you and allow you into paradise. But Muhammad told his followers there's one sure way to get into paradise, and that is by joining the holy war and fighting against my enemies. And if you do that, I promise you'll go to paradise. That's your payment. I can't give you any silver and gold, but I promise you, you'll go to paradise. Well, for followers of Islam who want to go to paradise, the only sure way to do that is to join the holy war and fight for Muhammad. That's how he gathered his army, and that is why they are so devoted. If you pay attention to what's happening in the world today and you read about what those Muslims did who were members of Hamas and, and other organizations who went into Israel on October 7th and slaughtered 1,200 Jews. They did horrendous things and they felt no that they felt no pity or sorrow because they were doing the good work of Allah. They were destroying the enemies of Islam. And it didn't matter if those were baby boys, weeks old. You know, I don't even want to say some of the things that they did. It's horrendous. And as Christians, we think... Surely, God would frown upon that. But these are the enemies of God in their point of view. And so God doesn't frown on it. They're, they're committing jihad. They're engaged in jihad. And they are making their place in paradise secure through their, through their deeds here. So by 629, Muhammad and his followers controlled Mecca. By 630, they controlled the entire Arabian Peninsula. And in 632, he makes his last journey to Mecca. He established the rites of the Hajj or the pilgrimage to Mecca. So every Muslim, at least once in their life, is supposed to make the pilgrimage to Mecca. And then he died later that year and was buried in Medina. So born in Mecca, 
570, buried in Medina in 632. Upon the death of Muhammad, a dispute arose as to who was going to be the next leader. And there were two guys, cousin Ali and father-in-law and friend Abu Bekar. This is where the divide in Islam between Sunni and Shia takes place. So most Muslims in the world today are Sunni Muslims. But there's one country in particular who is mostly Shia. Do you know what country that is? Huh? Do you know? It is Iran. So Iran, which is Persian, not Arab. So Iranians are not Arabs. Iranians are Persian. And the Iranians are mostly Shia. So the majority of, of, of Iranians are Shia. For instance, in Saudi Arabia, the majority of Saudi Arabians... The Arabs in Saudi Arabia are Sunni. The minority is Shia. And that divide within Islam occurred over this dispute between Ali and Abu Bakr about who would be. They both ended up becoming caliphs or leaders of the Islamic faith. Uh, they just, they came, I, I think Ali was like the fifth and Abu Bakr was the first, uh, if, if I'm correct. I think that's right. But this divide still exists today. And so the religion of Islam obviously still exists today. And it has spread from its beginning there in Mecca in 610. Let's just say 613. 613 is when Muhammad starts preaching publicly. So he starts receiving messages from the angel, the spirit. What does the Bible say? Test the spirits and see whether they be of God. Well, he didn't do that. If you, if you, if you look at how... Muhammad, this is kind of weird, but it's, it's interesting. If you look at how Muhammad received his uh, messages, and you think about how the Quran was written, it's not, it's not very, there are, there are similarities between the way Joseph Smith received his messages and the Book of Mormon was written. They both were communicated to by an angel of God, supposedly. They were both given these messages. They had them in their head, in themselves. And it's just, it's weird. It's not weird, it's demonic. I mean, there is nothing new under the sun. So this was, no doubt, demonic in its origins, but Muhammad thought that he was hearing from God's angel. 
Joseph Smith, no doubt, heard from a demonic spirit, but he thought he was hearing from God's angel. So what's interesting about Islam, so you can't criticize Islam. If you criticize, well, if you criticize Muhammad or if you criticize Allah, what happens to you in Islam? If the wrong person hears it, what happens to you? Yeah, you die. I mean, it's a death sentence. It's why, remember a few years ago, the, the, um, the, news, the news organization in, in, in the Netherlands, what was that called? Um, it was a magazine, and they made a cartoon about Charlie Hebo. And they made a cartoon about Muhammad. And these guys come in, and they shoot the place up and kill all these people because... That's what was demanded because they had desecrated the name of, of Muhammad and made fun of him. So you can't draw caricatures that are disrespectful. You can't say things that are disrespectful. So how much criticism of the Quran exists? I mean, think about the volumes of books and literature, if we want to call it literature, of writings that are critical of the scripture, of the Bible. I mean, it's prolific. And we don't have Christians going around killing people because they're writing things that are critical of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, or of the scripture. But in Islam, that's not the case. You can't do that. And so there's not a lot out there. You might wonder, well, how did, the, how did the people who wrote the Quran know what to write? If Muhammad never wrote anything, he didn't know how to read or write, and it was just going by what he said and what his followers remember. Now, that sounds, that sounds a little bit like critic people who are critical of the Bible, right? You hear that. How do we know what we have in the Bible is actually what God really said? Well, one of the ways that we know that is that we have thousands upon thousands of manuscript evidence that spans centuries and thousands of miles of geography and when you compare it all, which we can do now, the manuscript evidence says that, wow, how did, how did we have such consistency in the biblical record over centuries and thousands of miles of geography and so many different people and people groups across time, writing, copying these scripture. You don't have the same level of manuscript evidence to compare with the Quran. 
And it doesn't really matter for us as Christians because we know the scripture is inspired by God, but the Quran is not inspired by God. Now, if I was in the wrong country saying this to the wrong group of people, they'd take me away and take my head off. And so what I'm saying is, over the course of history, there hasn't been a lot of opportunity for Muslims to engage in critical thinking about the Quran because they're taught to not do that. I would encourage you as a Christian, don't be afraid to ask the hard questions about the Bible. Because you're not going to ask the question that's not already been asked. You're not going to deal with the difficulty that's not already been dealt with. And the overwhelming evidence of Scripture is we can trust God's Word. We can trust the Bible we have today. We can trust the record of Scripture that's been passed down to us today. All right, any, any thoughts about, that was just a very quick overview of the rise of Islam. Now, I wanted to cover that because as we move forward in history, we're going to see Islam is going to play a role in much of the early history of Europe and, uh, in, in, of course, North Africa and Asia. And we see today that we're still feeling the effects of this religion that was started in 622 A.D. All right, any questions, any thoughts? All right. Um, I do. Okay. So the, their, um, this started in 622 A.D. Muhammad doesn't write anything down. He speaks all this stuff that he hears from mm -hmm. his voice. Does the do the fables of the that fill the Quran, not not the morality commands, but the fables about like Jonah and Abraham and Ishmael, does that come from Muhammad's teaching or does that come later down the road? When does the Quran begin to be coded? Well, he he they begin, uh, Abu Bakr starts, he orders it written not long after. Well, so they have the same Quran. Uh, Abu Bakr is, uh, he is, it, the guy, uh, he's the father-in-law, remember? So Ali, the cousin, it's from those two. There wasn't a divide necessarily then like we see now. And so it's not that they have different books. They've got the same book, uh, basically. But the, the, um, the Quran was ordered, written, not long after the death of Muhammad. I, and I, I don't know. What form? Like, what form did it have at that point? Did it have those fables, like the biblical fables, at that first iteration? Um. I'm, yes, I would say that it does, but we don't really know what the first iteration was because we don't have really anything that necessarily goes back that far. 
Um, let me see here. Do we know when the last addition to the Quran was uh, that is that is widely accepted? Well, let's see here. Okay, here we go. Let's see if this gives us any. So these, um, so it was decided to collect the revelations and they were said to have been recorded on materials um, handed over, I'm trying to skip through some of this, handed over um, to the second caliph, Umar, who reigned in 634, from 634 to 644. So the revelations would have been written prior to 644. After Umar's death, the collection was inherited by his daughter. They did, uh, they did notice change or differences, and so they're trying to hold on to it and codify it, if you will. It bears emphasizing that uh, Uthman's standardization is understood to have pertained only to the Quran's so-called rasm, its consonantal skeleton shorn of any auxiliary signs. I don't really know what that means. Apart from lacking vowels, uh, this includes a significant number of consonantal homographs. Incidentally, medieval Islamic scholarship readily acknowledges the resulting ambiguity by admitting more than one authoritative way of reading many Quranic words as long as these readings are considered to have been transmitted from early authorities. So there was differences in the way that certain things were pronounced. A lot of what you have today did come out of later um, Islamic, come from later Islamic scholars, but supposedly it all goes back to these early sources. Let's see here. 
And, and again, it depends on who you're talking to. So, for instance, depending on what you might be reading on the Internet, if it's written by a Muslim, it's going to be written in a much more favorable light uh, and not highlight some of the more critical ways of perhaps thinking about this. Um, Western scholarship has gradually adopted a more cautious attitude toward the reliability of the relevant extra-scriptural material, which often cannot be traced back further than the 8th or at most the late 7th century, which would be at least 200 years after. I'm sorry, um, it would be the 800s, yeah, it would be 200 years after the death of Muhammad. So the bottom line is it's, it's kind of hard to know. Dave, you got any, um, any insight on this? Grapes, yeah. <laughs> That's one of the, the, the discrepancies in, in some of the words, you know. Um, and so who determines what it is? Um, supposedly the earlier scholars were supposed to go with what, what they say, not, not the later guys. Mm-hmm. But you don't have the, the wealth of the numbers of manuscripts, the numbers of things, and not nearly as prolific and well-reserved as you do with the manuscripts of, of Scripture. So I can't, I can't answer your question really very well, Caleb. No, that's okay. I have another question that's I would need to do a little more. I haven't done a lot of research on the Quran. So. The second question might be more um, clarifying for me. Does Islam practice, uh, like our version for us as Protestants is sola scripture. So we can have a creed. We can have a, a teaching or a pastor get up and say something. But we can have a creed that's developed that is you know, believed, but ultimately we say the Bible is the only inspired and infallible authority. I can really like the creed that we have, uh -huh. but ultimately we say the Bible, the scripture, is the only inspired and infallible. For Muslims, is there a variation within Islam, or does any branch of Islam believe that, you know, somebody to, that can still be alive today, or somebody who came after Muhammad, can speak inspired revelation that I don't, in addition to the Quran? I don't think so. Okay, so then when the, then the first question is the important one to say, when, did, when was all of this exactly codified? So nobody can, nobody can speak inspired today. Yeah, I would say no. They're not adding to the Quran today. Yeah. Well, not necessarily adding to the Quran. 
Ron, but you know, like Catholics say the Pope can speak. No, 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 there's no, no. The Quran is the, the Quran would be the final authority. It'd be like our, we would say the scripture is the final authority. The Quran would be the final authority. You don't have people, you don't have imams or caliphs out there, you know, giving new revelation. Uh, I'm going to look, I'll look at a little bit of this um, and maybe have a little more information for us next. I mean, it's just Weak. kind of shocking that that is laughed, that is not laughed to, to scorn the idea that these things that pop up in 622 mm -hmm. can somehow in so many people's minds be just as valid as scriptural text which we can trace back thousands of years. I don't understand that. So, um, the earliest full commentary on the entire Quran is ascribed to a guy named Muqtil Ibn Sulman, who died maybe around 767. So, this commentary dates to the 8th century. That's the earliest full commentary that is in existence. Um, and then there's another one of a guy who died in 930, 923. So there are these, those commentaries on the Quran. There's others. So a lot of this has to do with, like, like Dave was saying, you know, um, what are, where do the vowels, so like the words that are there that don't have vowels, how do we, how, how do you pronounce that, how do you, uh, does it mean grape or does it mean virgin, um, Right. Um, I'll, I'll uh, look at some of this and see if I can bring some more um, relevant information about the Quran. I, I didn't really do anything on the Quran. I was just more about the rise and the spread of Islam. Just, I'll, I'll, leave, I'll, I'll leave with this tonight and then we'll kind of pick up and talk a little bit more about this because it, it impacts our history. So in, in, in 711, by 711, Islam had taken over um, Northern Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, um, much the, the areas of Asia there. Um, do what? 
Yeah, northern India, Pakistan. Pakistan used to be part of India, um, and so that's why Pakistan is, is um, Islamic versus uh, Hindu. Um, those countries in, in what, would, what would formerly have been the southern part of the USSR, the, the Tajikistan, Turkestan, all of those Stan countries, they're Islamic. Uh, because Islam spread. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the, uh, some of the different groups that, that came into play. But in 711, Muslims from northern Africa invaded the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain. We call it Spain. It's the Iberian Peninsula that holds Portugal and Spain. And they invaded uh, at the most narrow point uh, where the Mediterranean Sea goes into the uh, Atlantic Ocean. It was called the Pillar of Hercules. It was one of the pillars of Hercules. We don't call it that today. What do we call it? The Rock of Gibraltar. And do you know how it came to be named the Rock of Gibraltar? Huh? No, it, the, uh, the general who led the Muslim armies into Spain to take Spain over from um, the Germanic tribes who, who controlled Spain, his name was Tariq ibn Ziyad. And when General Tariq crossed the Mediterranean Sea at the Pillar of Hercules and he climbed that great granite mountain, he proclaimed it Jabal Tariq, the mountain of Tariq, the rock of Tariq. And somehow, over the course of time, the rock of Tariq became Jabal Tariq. Jabal Tariq became Gibraltar. The mount of Tariq, Jabal Tariq has now morphed into Gibraltar, the rock of Gibraltar. And so the Muslims crossed from North Africa into the Iberian Peninsula and by 719 controlled almost all of the Iberian Peninsula. Now they didn't keep all of it, um, but but they controlled most of it for a period of time. We're going to stop there. In the next week, we're going to look at this, uh, this area, we call it Spain, back then it was called Al-Andalus. That's what the Arabs called it. That's what the Muslims called it. The Christians called it something different. They called it, well, they called it the Kingdom of Cordoba, but it had a nickname, a nun gave it a nickname. She called it the ornament of the world. So we'll pick up there next week and talk about Al-Andalus, the ornament of the world, and what's happening in um, the Iberian Peninsula there and how that is going to have an impact on some of our history. All right, any questions? Sorry I wasn't more up to speed on the Quran, but we'll see what we can find there. Uh, you can look too.